The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Professor of Eurasian Studies, Luca Anceschi, who teaches at the University of Glasgow. Buongiorno, Luca. How are things in Scotland? They're okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Uh, I've been following your work, uh, and I, I I wasn't aware my previous guest was actually uh, your student, so that that's pretty cool. Um, you, you had actually a point that you wanted to start out with, so, you know, why don't we start there? Well, I want to make two points, as I was saying to you just before we started, uh, two introductory points. The first one relates to domestic politics in Kazakhstan, and the second one relates to uh, foreign policy. And, and from where I stand, these are the two most important conclusions that we can draw now, I mean, 10 days after the events. So, domestic politics first. Was that a revolution? We will never know. We will never know because we've seen that there was a localized protest about the sort of economic discontent, which then snowballed into something wider, something bigger, spread across Kazakhstan, began to uh, expand not only its demand, but also the bandwidth of its appeal. So you are people across the street in very large numbers, unprecedented numbers. We knew that there were a few organizations that are structured or semi-structured and started to coordinate, but that stopped there because then the violence intervened. And the violence intervened was, the intervention of the violence was not uh, a kind of incubator for the transformation of this um, protests into a movement that could, uh, you know, uh, change the system, ask for systemic change. In fact, the protest became a secondary issue because you then have the in instigation of dynamical lawlessness in Kazakhstan. Now, I don't think there is a connection between uh, the activeness of the protest and the activeness of the violence. And I don't think that the protests became violent in, in, in simple words. Um, but it was, for whatever reason, this violence happening, we can go into it later on if you like to, that stopped the natural, organic evolution of the protest movement into something that could have changed the Kazakhstan political system. So I know that a lot of people were talking about the revolutionary potential of what we've seen, the, the, the transformation of Kazakhstan civil society into a mass movement, there are other people who talk about the social movement, theory can tell us about what happened. I think it is irrelevant at this point because it didn't organically evolve into something like that. And that's the first point. The second point I want to make regards related to foreign policy. Now, I work on both aspects of Kazakhstanic statehood, so I have my research to back up what I'm going to say. And the second point is that we have seen with the uh, entry into the Kazakhstan territory of CSEO troops, we have seen a game changer in relation to the um, understanding that the elite has said of the role that Russia can play in Kazakhstan domestic politics. In, in other words, we're going to see a structural change in the way in which Kazakhstan-Russia relations are going to be uh, 
evolving from now on. In other and which makes my general point, which I've written about, I got a couple of pieces out in the last 10 days, also my tweets about it, that multivectorism, as we knew it, is probably a thing of the past. Now, to qualify this, I am not arguing that we're going to see Kazakhstan becoming a, a state that is completely controlled by Russia or a state that is lost its sovereignty and Putin sort of control from outside what's happening in Kazakhstan. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that, my, especially when it comes to bilateral relations and the bilateral relations within the Eura Eurasian Economic Union, which is a very important avenue for the, the Russia-Kazakhstan relation, we, we will see Kazakhstan having less room for maneuver when it comes to play is kind of reluctant role of integrator. So the last 25 years, we've, we've seen Kazakhstan government, Nazarbayev particularly, calling for a new form of integration among sovereign states, among equal states, and he, he, he implicitly suggested that he should have been the leader of that kind of integration because it's not, basically it's not to Russia. Well, for, for listeners, I mean, wasn't uh, it Nazarbayev, I think, in 1994, who supposedly proposed the Eurasian um, economic... Indeed. Hold on. That's 29 of March, 1994. He had his big speech at Moscow State University, which is the fundamental uh, document of Kazakhstan in Eurasianism. So I think that the narrative that was born on that very day sort of died last week because, I mean, yes... That was a very small, numerically, very small contingent sent into Kazakhstan. The troops have already left, uh, but symbolically, that was very significant. And also, we need to recognize that these kind of military interventions do have consequences when it comes to foreign policy. So I am not saying, by any way, that Kazakhstan is going to be the next Belarus. to you know, always, you know, kind of be very close to Russia. Or am I going to... Oh, and not arguing either that Kazakhstan will cut off ties with China and with um, the European Union, but in the bilateral relation that the Kazakhstan state has got with Russia and the, the way in which these relations are understood and played out in multilateral terms in the European Union, well, having a president whose political life is now owed to Vladimir Putin does not allow the Kazakhstan state to be as free as they used to be. So and regardless of whatever, I mean, I heard today the, the ambassador to the UK saying that multivectorial continues as it used to be. Well, that is kind of denying the effect of that event. And we can't, we can't simply pretend it didn't happen. You, you wrote in your Carnegie piece, you know, as a consequence, we may reasonably expect the regime in Nur Sultan to drop its typical uh, reticence toward integration into the Eurasian Economic Union. And actually, earlier this week, this is what I had said uh, on one of my podcasts regarding Kazakhstan, that I also believe that as a result, Kazakhstan would push forward in this Eurasian integration. Um, and I, I read somewhere that you know, we see sometimes crazy opinions from Russian analysts or others saying that the, the idea of Kazakhstan, we have the Belarus and Russia union states and the calls for then adding Kazakhstan to like this union state. But in general, then you think you just mentioned from 1994 until uh, the current events, 
you know, that was one phase. Do you see now Kazakhstan, a second phase where it will, it will push closer now towards integration with Russia in the Eurasian uh, Union? Look, I am actually very glad that we are able to discuss this issue in such depth because obviously, you know, like it's difficult to publish this kind of analysis for, for kind of commentary pieces. So uh, what I'm saying is that the way in which Putin understands Eurasianism and the Eurasian Union since 2011, when he got back to the Kremlin, it is pretty much an instrument of geopolitical domination, if not in practice, at least rhetorically. And uh, we've seen that at different times, Russia really insisted that these states would become part of this process. So push to have these states in their close, in this, this Eurasian Union. Uh, so I think that the main consequence of what we saw last week with Kazakhstan entering into the, you know, like being uh, accepting, or actually inviting in CSCO troops, is that should Eurasian integration become, again, returning to play a very significant rhetorical role in Russian foreign policy, well, Kazakhstan will no longer be able to resist and be reticent about this process. So I'm not going to say it's going to happen, but if you, when they were negotiating the treaty, there were some issues that Russia won't be on the treaty and some others that weren't. So the, the draft that was originally proposed by Russia got diluted quite significantly because of Kazakhstan in Belarus, but particularly Kazakhstan in reticence. So those areas, energy, some discussion about common currency, other kind of uh, areas of cooperation. If Russia decides that they're important for them, I am really doubtful that Kazakhstan will be able to resist it as much as it would, as much as they had in the past. And that would create the practical implementation of a very much Russia-led integration in Eurasia. All right. And just going back to a point you made earlier, so and, and I would kind of agree with you. My, my assessment was that we may never know a lot of the things that that went on, but uh there were, you know, there was talk of an internal coup, right? You have the Nazarbayev clan, and then you have the newer Tokayev administration, and the, you know, the, the KNB head Masimov was um, arrested, and you know, there were talks of the Nazarbayev clan or his his children in certain positions of power trying to remove Tokayev. I mean, wh what are your final thoughts on that? I talked to Paolo, and he said that he thinks the st status quo will continue. That you know, the Nazarbayev Tokayev duo will continue and i pretty much agree with that i mean what are your thoughts on a possible like internal coup or uh, elite inter-rivalry yeah, I, I think that is indeed the case uh, i mean you know kazakhstan very well you live there and you are perfectly aware that if there is a very small demonstration in central almaty which is what the city more familiar with uh, even even 50 people, you would have at least 200 policemen going on and check it. So on this basis, try to make sense of why the city was completely under a state of lawlessness when there were protesters in the street, violent, and there was no police. If, if you hear first an account, at one point the police disappeared. So a total collapse of security, it makes me think that being this a very atypical behavior for a very repressive state as the Kazakhstan one, I would think that 
some portion, some segments of the service of the, of the services, security services, the Siloviki, as he would call it, had started to go against the president. Now, I can't prove it, of course. You probably will never know. Uh, I mean, if you're lucky enough, I mean, you will have to have some interviews with people. But even then, you know, it's, it, it, there is no possibility to, to empirically demonstrate that. But I have a study with a Finnish colleague, and we have been looking at Kazakhstani elite in the last six years. And one of the main conclusions that we had, I mean, we've written here, we're hopefully to get it out sometime to this year, is this, the elite in the, in, in, in the last, in, in the Tokaya, you know, 2019 up to now, had become somewhat a little bit more oligarchic. So there was, it wasn't as personalistic as Nazarbayev-centric. As, so Tokayev did not substitute Nazarbayev macro straight away. So you had the coexistence of different power centers within the elite. And it's not reasonable to think, and the uh, anecdotal evidence on, on, on that I described before confirms that, that you would have different power centers that collided in generally different elite centers. Now, how are we, are we gonna are we ever gonna be able to identify clearly what these centers are? The answer is we probably won't. Uh, we need to do the kind of you know uh, the kind of speculative work that Sovietology used to do, and you had to see who got moved here and who got moved there. And the reality is that so far the only person who paid is Karim Masimov. He has been his, his obliteration from the uh, elite arrest is situation is the main result of what happened last week. Uh, now, whether or not the president will going to be able is going to be able to kind of disenfranchise an Azerbaijan family and get stripped them of the assets, that's something for the next oh, few months to see. Obviously, uh, dealing with Masimov was much easier than sort of completely uprooting an Azerbaijan power system. So. My thinking is in, this, in these terms. I, I read what Paolo wrote about not being sure about who controlled what. Um, I am not really sure, I mean, whether you can, you know, like, uh, there, are, there is a lot that we don't know, but I think that the protest we've discussed before became a very, very, very uh, useful shield behind which to conceal this elite rift. So the eruption of this protest in a foreign elite, which was already fragmented before that, and don't forget, I mean, it's something which I haven't heard much in the days. When the OCCRP uh, found out about the Pegasus uh, investigation, well, we heard that Tokayev's phone was under surveillance. Which means that if the president is under surveillance, there must be someone who's, who's, the, who's doing this surveillance. So there was a fragmentation there. I mean, you don't need to be a conspiratorial. So, I mean, I guess I am, the point I'm trying to make here is that however we understand the protests, however we understand what's going on, and of course, this demands are legitimate, this, the people are seriously disenfranchised in Kazakhstan. Um, but what we've seen, it can't really be explained 
by looking at social movement or positions in Russia, it's totally irrelevant, that kind of discourse. What we're seeing here is, is a regime that instrumentally manipulated the, the kind of widespread protests in the country to try to purge part of it and didn't work out. Yeah, so well, it makes sense shifting the focus from the people to the elite because otherwise you don't understand either of them. You, you tweeted an article on Nazarbayev's cult of personality today, and I just thought this was interesting to mention uh, for listeners as well. You know, my experience living in Kazakhstan has been that it, it truly is nuts uh, in the sense that, you know, Nazarbayev, him or the people in his uh, administration have excessively been pushing the renaming of everything Nazarbayev, just streets and stadiums and installing Nazarbayev statues everywhere. Um, in that sense, the cult of personality. But when it comes to the people, you know, every almost every single Kazakh that I've met, they laugh about it, they roll their eyes and they joke. So they don't take it seriously. They don't uh, buy it. So it's kind of like a, a cult of personality uh, without the cult. And, you know, what are your thoughts on Nazarbayev's cult of personality? Has that star kind of faded? Look, I, I remember uh, being, you know, walking in central Amati, this beautiful avenue called Furmanova, and now it's called Nazarbayev. And everyone, you know, everyone who I was walking to with, they would tell me, this 2011, 2012, they would tell me, well, when Nazarbayev dies, this will be renamed Nazarbayev. It actually happened a few years later. So um, there has been an, a, a tendency in the government of accelerating the establishment of what they will call it you know, today, the, the Nur Sultanistan. And I think that's annoyed the people a lot. Now, whether uh, the Kazakhs didn't believe or did believe the cult of personality, I think it's kind of irrelevant because it's still imposed by the regime. So you, you're right, there are people who laughed about it, but I also see people who went and put their hands into the handprint. Uh, when the movie was out, there were people who actually were taking pictures of this is put leader, so the the part with the lead, taking picture of the billboard, uh, it could be they're obviously the exception of the norm, but I think that cult of personality are, are the narrative representation of a regime that tries to play the numbers and just put it out there in the hope that as many people as possible do believe it. And if they don't believe it, well, fair enough, but there are people who can, you know. Uh, so I, I think that um, it is a particular cult of personality. It's not as extreme as the one that uh, Niyazov, for instance, built in Turkmenistan. Uh, does not have any kind of family connotation, which is what Niyazov did, for instance. Has been put uh, into place more aggressively in the last six, seven years. Uh, with the movies, the trilogy, with the renaming of the capital, with the name of the streets. And uh, it didn't work, obviously, I know the people. Uh, but it is part of what uh, that regime thought that was the way to go. Um, even the successor, the, one of the first uh, decisions that he made was to rename the capital in the Nur Sultan. 
I think that what actually hurt Nazarbayev more than this kind of problem was the corruption that his family oversaw. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when the people, you know, started to chant all down with the old man, I think that what they actually meant uh, was getting rid of all the corrupt people around him, not just change name back into Astana. Mm-hmm. They want a kind of distribution of assets that the family had stolen. Uh, I would be remiss not to ask you uh, this angle. Uh, the Chinese, uh, the Russians, and some Western analysts say that this was a poor or failed regime change attempt uh, by the West, that possibly extremists were sent in from abroad or a color revolution was uh, attempted. Someone pointed out that the, the KNB head that was arrested, Masimov, um, had close ties to Joe and Hunter Biden. What are your thoughts um, f- for these proclamations of a, a regime change attempt from uh, abroad? Oh, well, it's trivial, isn't it? It's just totally irrelevant. Uh, it's conspiratorial. It's obviously uh, kind of uh, influenced by wider narrative or disinformation and misinformation. So I won't really engage with it, to be honest with you. Um, I just want to make one more point on Russia. Uh, I think that you know here I need to distinguish between the, the kind of sectors you mentioned before and what the Russian government ended up doing in here. And from whatever perspective you want to look at it, this had been a fairly good week for Putin when it comes to Kazakhstan relations. I don't think that the invitation of Tokayev, Tokayev's invitation of CSCO troops is inconsequential. Certainly wasn't inconsequential in domestic politics because when the Russian troop came in, the people who opposed Tokayev understood that he had the back of Russia, the backing of Russia. But I don't think it's going to be inconsequential even in foreign policy, as I was saying before, uh, because now that is a seminal moment, a watershed in now Kazakhstani Russia relationship, I'm going to be framed. Everything else, I mean, everything else that, that you mentioned before. It's irrelevant. This is nothing to do with Russia being geopolitically an aggressive. Russia was was a passive actor in this. This is nothing to do with the color revolution. Nothing to do with it. The West is totally irrelevant. I mean, it's largely irrelevant in Central Asia. Also, there is not really a design for regime change in Kazakhstan. I mean, who would you do that? It's, it's, it's a difficult environment to penetrate. And China obviously does not have an interest in instability because they just want the money or they want to sell to Kazakhstan. So there is, is a much more of a commercial relations. So uh, ultimately, we're trying to explain with international factors what is essentially a domestic Kazakhstan affairs, both in the way in which the problem started and in the way in which the violence started, but also in the way in which Russia came in. It all had to do with Kazakhstan domestic politics. All right. Um, you know, one of my final questions, I guess, you know, what impact might these events uh, in Kazakhstan have on the wider area, Central Asia, neighboring stands? You know, where does Kazakhstan go from here? What, what do you think the road ahead looks like? I think that this kind of situation asks a few questions to the uh, regional government, governments. Uh, I mean, with 30 years on uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
the five republics are all five authoritarian. There is not a democratic regime in the region. So we, we are moving, we are all understanding regional politics in this authoritarian spectrum, and we're not. Um, and seeing the Kazakhstani regime, which has always been thought, even by people like me, as a way to be very stable, being the problems, it, 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 of course, is that it has been noticed and understood in Tashkent, uh, in Ashgabat, and so on and so forth. So I think that uh, the bigger question now I'm going to be asked, uh, what well, is Uzbekistan? Because the, the model of authoritarian development, which we've seen at play in Uzbekistan since 2016, it is very much shaped around the Nazarbayev dream of the, 20, of the 2000s. So, focusing on economic welfare, on kind of wealth creation, GDP growth, and postponing indefinitely, actually, any kind of uh, political reform. And the, the collapse of this Nazarbayev dream in the 2010s actually showed Uzbek states that they have to start dealing with these, uh, the state capacity of delivering the economy. Because otherwise, uh, widespread discontent when it comes to economic, economic performance actually has a very highly destabilizing uh, implication. So, mm, attention to inequality, attention to limited corruption as much as they can, attention to jobs, uh, creation or growth of wealth is the kind of parameters that the Uzbek state is kind of see. The, the, the regional people have, uh, well, the Kazakhstan people have spoken. I mean, there is, you can't have too many years of political, uh, well, repression and failure to deliver in the economic terms. You need to have one or two at least that works. And this is the kind of situation which we're going to see reflected in Uzbekistan. Then there is a complication of what kind of relationship this state can have with Russia. Should Russia become more pressing in asking for the accession of these states into multilateral fray, but this is something for another day, I think that the main, I think that they are going to learn the less because there is a lot of authoritarian learning these states copy each other when it comes to, uh, and I, I would say that that's, that's the main question, particularly because Uzbek state, which is developing what I've called an authoritarian modernization project, is uh, modeling their own idea of state, idea of development, very much in line with what Kazakhstan was, Kazakhstan was in 2000. So that's it's a big uh, reality check for them as well, that they had to get their act together if they want to keep stable. All right. Well, yes, uh, indeed. Um, I do hope things stabilize in the region and we don't get more of what just happened um where would be the best place for people to follow your work i, I follow your work uh, via twitter um where would be the best place i do tweet quite a lot about not only about my ideas but what's going on in central asia and i mostly comment on kazakhstan Turkmenistan, uzbekistan because the country i 
I I know best and uh, I write on, but also on my Twitter account, I will post any kind of more general media intervention that I make. And of course, my research when it comes out, both when it comes out, but also when I uh, sort of make progress and findings which I can review to the public. All right, uh, everyone, be sure to find Luca on Twitter. Uh, Grazie, Rachmet, Spasiba for being on Geopolitics and Empire. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.